Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Hey, it's good to see all of you. Dr. Just is back. I hardly need to introduce him, but uh, I will say it's, very, it's been nice to have Dr. Bynes preach last week and Arthur this week. It's quite refreshing for us to – it's a window to their soul, so it's very interesting. I know what I'm going to hear from Arthur uh, even before he starts, and I think now I have a little interest in your soul as well. Uh, <laughs> the things you can, you know, I know I'm going to get the temple located on earth. I know I'm going to get to be fully human. I know at some point Jesus is going to make my, my uh, wrongs right over the course of the sermon, so I always welcome that very much. But he's an old friend and a good friend, and he's good for me and uh, good for Pastor Nelson as well. So we, we're very glad that they're helping us out in the midst of a time where we're a little bit shorthanded. Um, He'll take a little bit of time and talk to you about a range of things. If you drop money in the basket, Betsy says it goes to People's Resource Center. So that's good. And um, with that, you're off to the races. Right. Thanks for coming back to see us. Hey, my pleasure. There you go. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Well, it's great to be back. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was here, because it was December, and usually it's longer between my visits. Um, I thought I'd start out by thanking you for your ongoing support of us and our work in Latin America, the Caribbean, and Spain. <clears throat> and I thought I'd give you just a little sense of what we're doing right now. Linda and I just came back from a meeting in St. Louis that's still going on. Preaching here allowed me to escape that meeting. <laughs> so I, I'm very grateful for that. But uh, three times a year we bring together all the executive staff of International Mission and the area directors, which means Latin America, West Africa, East Africa, Eurasia, and Asia, along with the regional business managers. They're business managers in each of those areas. Um, and they get together and just talk through some of the issues that are going on. And it's, it's, a, it's a very valuable experience because we're all far-flung and we all come together and, and kind of unite ourselves around the the mission of the church. And it is an incredible group of people. Um, one of the regional business managers, some of you may know this, is Peter Savitsky's brother, Rick. He's in Asia. So I had a chance to visit with him um, this last couple of days. So it's, it's great. He's having fun at the meetings, too. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet. <laughs> um, in winter and spring, I teach at Fort Wayne, but I also do a little traveling. Um, Tuesday, I'm going to Panama, for example. We have a foro, which means forum, where we bring partners together about how we can work together and, and you know, moving the mission forward. And then in the two-week break between the winter and the spring, and maybe Linda might even go with me on this, um, we're going to Bolivia. Now, Bolivia is an interesting story. You might be interested in this. It was started there, the Lutheran Church, by a Norwegian mission society which is sort of a, a group that wasn't, you know, kind of ordaining pastors, that was more Bible study kind of prayer groups. And this shows you kind of the value of theological education. And I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but about eight years ago, one of their students came to one of our seminaries, and they were just 
caught up in what it means to be a kind of a classic confessional Lutheran. And since then, we've had eight of them come through our seminaries, and they are on fire for being like us. And so there's a little tension there, but we're going to be talking. that They're not a partner church, but we're talking about how we can work together with them. And uh, Bolivia's, I, you know, I always knew Bolivia from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I don't know, <laughs> you know, you know I mean, this, but um, I was so impressed by Bolivia. It's a high culture, which is true of a lot of Latin American countries. And what I mean by that is, has a strong, you know, like the Incas, the Aztecs. These are, you know, very, very cultured, intelligent, incredibly, you know, gifted people. And, and Bolivia is like that. They have the tension between the Spanish and the indigenous, too. We were going to, this gives you a little glimpse of it, we were going to go there in um, November. But the day we were going to arrive was the day, if you read the papers, was the day that the president abdicated and went to uh, Mexico. And there were riots. And you could fly into the airport, but you couldn't get out of the airport. So we would have just been in the airport. So we didn't go. Uh, we did go to Chile, where there were also man- manifestaciones. I love that for riots, manifestations. You know, <laughs> it's kind of a gentle word, and and we and we avoided them because the pastors knew where they were, so they said take this highway because this one's closed down. But anyway, we're also going to go to Uruguay, where we're starting a Lutheran university. Um, and I could spend an hour telling you the story of the man there, who is sort of the inspiration behind what's happening, and. Uruguay, but this is remarkable for this sense. In all of the Western Hemisphere, Uruguay is the most secular country. It is, I mean, it's essentially an agnostic slash atheistic country. Also has the highest suicide rate. But in all of Spanish-speaking world, this will be the first country we have a Lutheran university, which is amazing. And it's going to be quite something. And I think it will be Lutheran, which is really great. In, in my, my next, you know, my next act, I want to teach at that university. So. And then we're going to go to, to Chile because we have some wonderful people there. That's a, that's a, a country that has really been suffering. Um, and from many of it, natural disasters, you know, the fire, I don't know if you look up the fire in, in uh, Valparaiso. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's like a holocaust. It's incredible what it did. And the earthquakes as well. Which brings me to the big thing in our region, and that's Puerto Rico. As you know, Puerto Rico was hit by an earthquake. Uh, You would be glad to know that the first church on the ground in Ponce, which was the center of the earthquake, was the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Our missionaries there, there were six of them, they were the first responders. And the mayor of Ponce came to them for advice. And then the mayor of San Juan, which, of course, is the capital, came to our Missouri Synod guys for advice. Um, Our church, which we had just bought, was cracked. I mean, if you look at the destruction there, it's just, it's unbelievable. And people were living in the streets. Just one little interesting pastoral care issue there. They had all these people that were, you know, they, they, they found tents for them. They built up these tents. And some of the young families were coming to them and saying, you know, we never had our kids baptized. We were going to do it. Could you do it for us now? So they started doing catechesis on baptism. And I think they had like 20 or 25 baptisms in the first week. So that's the kind of stuff that's going on. 
We, we have had rolling teams going in there. This is the kind of organization we have from disaster relief of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod that trained these people. And in our region, we have three or four different pastors and deaconesses going in about every four or five days to help and give relief to the missionaries who are there. So it's really, it's quite an extraordinary thing. And I just got pictures of how they have, they've set up a beautiful little church there. So they're starting to worship. And, and of course, in disasters, you know, this is the nature of suffering. People are, are interested in God. And, and they're looking for God. So anyway, that's just a little sense of what you, you know, your contributions to our work. This is the kind of thing we're doing. So anyway. Okay. Um, I chose, Scott said, what parable do you want to talk about? And I've never taught this parable. I love this parable. Um, and I said, hey, let's do the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it gives me a chance to talk about Luke because this parable has a very interesting place in Luke's gospel. Let, let me just start a little bit. I'm going to do a little kind of introduction to Luke here. This is his prologue, which means the first four verses, and Luke is known for this. And the reason I, I bring this up, because I want you to see the language he uses. He calls his gospel a narrative, okay? And down here you can see I translated it a narrative, and he talks about events, historical events that have come to fulfillment among us. So things that were happening in the life of Jesus have been prophesied in the Old Testament and have now reached their end. He talks about tradition. Now, when he talks about tradition here, he's talking about the scripture. And up here, when he, he says many have endeavored to reproduce a narrative, that means he's not the first gospel, the first narrative. And then uh, this, this is a very important statement in the New Testament, you know, um, where this, this uh, purpose clause, in order that you, and I really butchered the translation here because I wanted to emphasize, this is the last word in Greek, in order that you may come to recognize completely concerning the words by which you have been catechized, that's the word, the, the word is catechesis, the certainty of your teaching, the certainty and what's interesting about this, and here's kind of the point I'm going to be making about interpreting Luke, is that he is a literary person. So he has themes that run all the way through, and, and you have to pay attention to his motifs, the way he uses language, and how he develops things all along the way. And what's, what's interesting is, I should have highlighted it, this word, come to recognize, in the Greek, is used at the very end of the gospel, the only other time it's used, where I think the climax of the gospel is where they came to recognize Jesus for the first time as the crucified and risen Lord in the breaking of the bread. So how do we have certainty concerning what we've been taught? It's in the breaking of the bread. That's, that's Luke's theme. I wrote an entire essay on this, so I'm going to just stop right there, okay? <laughs> anyway, um, here is an outline of Luke's gospel, and you can, real, real quickly, I mean, you put the prologue and infancy narrative at the beginning, then you have Jesus getting ready for his ministry, and, and this is the heart of the gospel here. The Galilean ministry here, you can see, is about five chapters. This is two and a half years of Jesus' life. And then a half a year to get to Jerusalem, you know, which is, I mean, it's a three-day three walk, and he takes six months, so I don't know what the heck he was doing. <laughs> and, and that is really true. When you read the journey, it's so different. This is the turning point. 
But I did all this to show you that this little parable comes at the very end. Look, at, we're almost in Jerusalem in 1928. We're in chapter 18. This comes at the very end. And, you know, Zacchaeus, which I'll, give a, a, I'll show you uh, where that occurs, is in Jericho. So this is, this is a culminating teaching, okay? And what you're going to see when I talk about it is there's a theme that, that, that Jesus and Luke have been banging from the beginning, you know, from the beginning. And it's almost as if when he gets to this parable, Jesus is saying, okay, one more time, for those of you who are a little dull, haven't picked it up yet, with feeling, there was a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. And he tells this story, which really is something he has been, you know, developing all the way through. So um, when you get to Jerusalem, you, you have Jesus' Jerusalem ministry and, of course, his passion and then the resurrection narrative. This is a very simple outline. But I just wanted to put this in the context of the gospel. Now, here's the context. Yeah, I think you can see this. The context of where our text is. And our text, of course, is right here. And there is a, a kind of a, a new section here in 18, 1 to 8. And you know, we, I call it the unrighteous judge, but it's really about the importunate widow, the widow who's constantly you know, pushing him. And he finally says, okay. You know, you can have your way. And it says we should be persistent in prayer. But the last line is the important line. And this is Jesus. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a, I mean, that, we could ask that question today, couldn't we? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? <clears throat> and he answers it in this section that takes us all the way to Jerusalem here. And it's really about discipleship, you know. He's going to find it in the tax collector, not in the Pharisee. He's going to find it in children. And the word for children in Luke are brephos, which means not just little children, but it also means unborn children. Okay? So, I mean, if you're looking for a, kind of a, a passage to support our position on life, Luke is really the one to use because of the use of that word. Um, the rich ruler, he's struggling to be a disciple. Uh, here's a, this is a passion prediction. It's a very gory one. It's the last one before Jesus enters Jerusalem. And true discipleship involves suffering, you know. A blind man, you know, the, this is, you know, have mercy on me. And, and we'll come back to that because he does cry for mercy. He's a true disciple. And his eyes are open physically, and he, they were already opened spiritually, because he knew Jesus was the Messiah. And then I put Zacchaeus here. You can see we kind of start with a tax collector and we end with a tax collector in this section. And this is interesting, chief tax collector. This is the only place in all of literature where that word is used. So there's no other place. And I'm talking not just the Bible, in Hellenistic literature, meaning literature that, that uses the Greek language. And he's a true disciple, and he's, you know, the chief tax collector. And then you can't really see this, but the parable of the meanest they are the, gives his disciples a, a very clear illustration. It's a good stewardship text. So I, what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting to you here is to understand this parable. You have to see it in the entire gospel and in the section that we're in and how important it functions there. Um, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they're stereotypes. They're stereotypes. 
The Bible, I know this, we don't like to use stereotypes, the Bible does. Okay? The Bible does. And the Pharisees are not necessarily bad guys, although they, you know, tend to be portrayed in a negative image, and they certainly are in this parable. But remember, the Pharisees are the rock of the church in Acts. They're the ones who really, I mean, come into the church. They're very naturally given to what Jesus is teaching. I always say this, that there, there are two religious parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, Sadducees are priests. They, their chief priests come out of the Sadducees. They're Jerusalem-bound. They're kind of high-church liberals. Okay, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're really interested in the, in the temple. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in messianic prophecies. You know, they're, they're solely the first five books because it's about the temple. Prophets are kind of anti-temple, anti-sacrifice. So it's, I mean, and the Pharisees are like Jesus. They're Bible-believing. They're teachers. They love the scriptures. They believe in the resurrection. They're generally very conservative over and against the Sadducees. So the, the Pharisees are kind of natural. That's, why do you think they are inviting him to their synagogues all the time? Because he's one of them, you know? But, as I always say, he's like them, walks like them, talks like them, smells like them, dresses like them, but with one difference. Jesus teaches the way of salvation. Pharisees teach the way of the law. Okay? And it, it's very clear that they do that. Publicans are outcasts. And... One of the big issues in the time of Jesus was who's in and who's out. In other words, who's a true Israelite? Who can go to temple? Who can go to synagogue? Who can you know, attend the table fellowship among Jews that was oftentimes very religious? The, the people who determined who was in and who was out, outside of Jerusalem at least, were Pharisees. And a tax collector, I mean, they're a Jew, but they're, they're, they're gouging the, the, the Jewish people. They would be considered, you know unclean. They would have been considered out. Um, I I know I've talked about this with you before, but there are always these bookends in Luke. He begins and ends in the same way, okay? He has these bookends. Sometimes they're called uh, like a sandwich. You have two pieces of the bread and what's in the middle. Um, One of the great bookends is this one in, in 512. This is a calling of Levi, uh, the tax collector, Matthew, you know, I have not come to call righteous but sinners to repentance, a very important line in Luke. And then we already looked a little bit at Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man came in order to seek and save the lost. Here's Zacchaeus. So you begin with Matthew, the tax collector, and you end with Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. And this parable is in the context of the fact that tax collectors are very important in Luke's gospel. Um, the theme that really the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is all about is that there are two groups in Luke. There's a group that receives Jesus in faith, and there's a group that rejects Jesus, even to the point of crucifying him. And it's completely contrary to what you'd think. The religious establishment, who know better, who know the scriptures, who should see in Jesus the Messiah, they're the ones who reject him, they're the ones who crucify him. Again, I could spend an entire Bible study showing you in the Passion of Luke that the ones who want Jesus crucified are the Pharisees. Sadducees really could care less. They just do what the Pharisees said. You know, they're on the council together and they kind of persuade them to do it. 
Pilate, ruthless man, kill anybody, you know? In Luke 13, the, the Galileans that are in the temple, they're obviously a threat to him. He goes into the temple, kills them in the temple during Passover, and their blood mixes with the blood of the Passover lambs. I mean, that is like beyond the pale. Like one commentator said, it would be like during the Eucharist here at St. John's, somebody comes in and mows people down at the altar rail, and our blood mixes with the blood of, of, of Christ. I mean, that, that's the kind of scandal it would be. That might actually make the Today Show, you know? I mean, <laughs> that there are actually Christians who are persecuted in the world. But anyway, the, the religious establishment rejects him. The ones who receive him in faith, the ones who follow him, the ones who are faithful, are the sinners. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. It's totally contrary to what the Pharisees would expect. And we just did the presentation last Sunday. I don't know if you celebrated it here. But this wonderful line by Simeon to Mary, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. You know, I, I didn't include this passage, but later on in, in Luke 20, there's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And, and Jesus says, you know, the stone is going to fall on those who reject and crush them. You know, others are going to stumble. But there are going to be people who rise. So right here, you know there are going to be people who are going to fall on Jesus and are going to rise on Jesus. In other words, who are going to reject him or who are going to believe in him. This is a remarkable passage. This is in Luke 7. And it's where Jesus is sorting out for people who John the Baptist is. Okay, They think he's the Christ. Even John sends disciples, his disciples, he's in prison, sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the coming one, the Messiah, or should we expect another? And I think John is kind of wondering about that because he's, you know, he's in prison. And Jesus says, I'm going to set the prisoners free. John's his cousin. He's a prophet. I mean, why not set him free? So John, you know, is, is kind of worried about this. And, and, and the Jesus' response, I, I wish I had time to go into it. But this is a, a running kind of discourse on who John is. And, and Luke, this is only in Luke. He has this parenthetical phrase here, and you can really see the categories. And all the people and the tax collectors, so these are the ones who receive him, having heard Jesus, they acknowledge God as just. This is the uh, 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 use of the word for justification, but it's the opposite. Okay, Instead of God declaring us just, righteous, they are, he's the, instead of he declaring us righteous, they're declaring God as righteous. And I, and I think the way to, to think of that is they acknowledge that God's plan of salvation in John and Jesus is, is a righteous one. And how do they demonstrate that? They submit themselves to the baptism of John. I mean, that's a fruit of repentance. The first fruit of repentance is to submit to the waters you know, of the baptism of John. And then look at this. But the Pharisees and lawyers, there they are, the two groups. I mean, stereotypes, but so clear, these two groups. They reject the plan of God for themselves. And how do they show that? They don't submit to John's baptism. Okay? Now, this is crucial. You can see, because it's only in Luke, Matthew has a parallel discourse, but he doesn't have these verses. This is a, themat, a, a, them, a big theme for Luke, is what I'm trying to say. Parable of the, the, uh, the, the prodigal son. Notice how it starts. I know that, that Pastor Bruzek talked about this earlier, but... Boy, this is a key, key passage in Luke. All the tax collectors and sinners drawing near in order to hear him, 
And both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay? So the, 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 they want to be hearers of the word. They want to be disciples. They want to be catechumens. That's what to hear is to be a catechumen. And, and they're grumbling like the children of Israel in the wilderness. And I, I think it's fair to say, I mean, Jesus was crucified for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons he was crucified by the Pharisees is because he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, the, par- the, fa- the, 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 the parable of the, the, here's the prodigal here, this is the Rembrandt, and right here is the elder brother. I mean, there you have the two categories, the elder brother, Pharisees, prodigal, tax collectors, and sinners. Whole parable on that. Okay, that brings us to our parable. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right, and I'm just going to read it through and then make a few comments, and I think our time will be up. <laughs> All right. Now, remember, this is at the end. So this is, like I said, one more time with feeling. If you haven't gotten it yet, okay, here it is. Here's a real simple parable. It's really clear. And he also said to some who were trusting in themselves. Now, notice that language. It's echoed in our gospel lesson for today. Self-righteous, you know, believing in their own merit by their works. That they were righteous and who were despising others this parable. Now, you know he's talking about the Pharisees here. No doubt about it. As you listen to this, notice how they're paralleled. Two men went up into the temple in order to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, having taken his stand by himself, I love that language. So you stand to pray, so he's taken his stand, began to pray these things. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of these men. And this, this is my translation, seizing, stuff, wanting stuff, you know, kind of covetous. Unrighteous, adulterers, and even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on everything I obtain. Okay? But the tax collector, standing at a distance, okay, he's not front and center, would not even raise his eyes into heaven, but he kept beating his chest. The only other time in Luke where they're beating their chest is after Jesus was crucified, and everybody who saw it realized, oh my gosh, we killed a righteous man, the Son of God. You know, they beat their breasts. It's a sign of repentance. Saying, oh God, and this is my translation, because this is, this is really what the Greek says. It doesn't say, be merciful toward me. It says, be propitiated toward me. Now that's the language of atonement. Propitiation, expiation, atonement. Propitiation is where you're trying to appease God. You know, or God is being appeased by blood. Expiation is the cleansing. We just did a symposium at the seminary on atonement, which is expiation and propitiation, atonement. And um, expiation is not a word we use in English, but I said in the, in the symposium, you know what the word for atonement is in Spanish? Expiacion. It's great. So they actually have that word in the Spanish. So be propitiated. He's talking about atonement, and I'll explain the, the meaning of that in a minute. But notice what he says. Oh, God, be propitiated for me the sinner. Now this guy is looking at all the sinners around him saying, thank God I'm not like them. I'm a pious guy. And he's trusting in himself. I mean, you can see how clear this is. Beautiful teaching of Jesus. 
Here's Jesus. I say to you, this man went down to his home having been declared righteous. This is the language of justification. It's the only place in the Gospels where you're going to find that. Paul's doctrine of justification is in this parable. So this one, this man, namely this one here, went down instead of that one, the Pharisee. And then we heard this before in Luke 14. It's obviously a big theme. It's what I call part of the great reversal, that everything's different in the kingdom. First or last, last first. If you want to save your life, you lose it, that kind of thing. And here it is, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And of course, this describes Jesus as much as anything else. Now, what's very important here is the context of the temple. Okay? And here's another bookend. Luke begins his gospel and ends it in the temple. Ends. S. I did this this morning at breakfast because I thought I got to put this in. Okay, here, here's, this is right after the prologue. It's about Zechariah. And it came to pass while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God in the appointed order of his priestly division, according to the custom of his priestly office, he was chosen by lot to make an incense offering, which is an atonement offering, after entering the holy place of the Lord. Now, the holy place is right here. This is the Holy of Holies. So he's one step away from the Holy of Holies. And you can't see this, but the last verse of the gospel is, and they, after worshiping him, returned into Jerusalem with great joy, and they were through all time in the temple, blessing God. But they're in the temple. The disciples go back to the temple. Now, this is remarkable. I could go on and on about this, how a a Gentile gospel, a gospel written to Gentiles, begins in the holy place, you know, a heartbeat from the Holy of Holies, and has the disciples returning to the temple, blessing God. Okay, quickly, temple, so you can see where we're at. These are images. There's the Mount of Olives. Here's, Here's the marketplace. This is what Jesus cleansed, okay? He didn't cleanse this. Cleanse this. This is where Gentiles could be. This is the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go beyond this wall. This is all for Jews, okay? Here's Solomon's portico where... Jesus and Peter would have taught. Holy of Holies is here. Holy of Holies is here. Holy place is here. Here's a view now from the Mount of Olives. You can see it a little better. This is the court of women. This is where our parable takes place. I'll take you there in a minute. This is where the sacrifices are. Holy place. Holy of Holies. Again, here's where the court of the Gentiles. During Passover, there are 10,000 lambs in here. And there's a bucket brigade that goes all the way up into here where they dump the blood. It's great. A lot of blood. Uh, Here's another rendition. I showed this one to you earlier, but it shows you somebody else who really basically has a similar idea of how to look at this. Now, this is the court of women where we're going to see this parable taking place. During the atonement sacrifices, nine in the morning, three in the afternoon, third hour, and the ninth hour, everybody would gather here for prayer, and they would pray because the atonement sacrifices are taking place here. Okay? And looking down on it here, the Pharisee is right here, looking around him. He's right in front of the Nicanor Gate. Okay? So right in, you know, this is only the priests going here. 
Here you can see the lava bowl. I have pictures of this before. This is where the sacrifices are. Holocaust. Here are the animals. So he's here, standing up, taking his stand in the center. We don't know where the, Pharisee, uh, the publican was, the tax collector. He's probably in the corner here. You know, he's, he's far away. Oh, yeah, here you can see it better. There's the Pharisee right there. Over here is the tax collector. Okay? <laughs> but this is the context. This is the context. And they are praying because the atonement sacrifices are taking place. So that's why when he says, be propitiated to me, he's saying, make atonement for me because he wants to be cleansed by the atonement sacrifices, be propitiated by what's happening in the temple. There you're looking down where the priests are. And I just, real quick, there's the Nicanor Gate. When they had those, the, the, the brigade of blood, this was covered with blood. Um, and there, look at the animals. There's the meat that they would sacrifice. And here you can see the instruments that are playing. Here's the, the burnt offerings. The altar would be under here. This is where they pour the blood. The, the laver bowl where they use for ablutions. There's more meat, you know. So you can really see how important the context is, the temple. Okay. ESV, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the better translation. Oh, God, be propitiated toward me, the sinner. Make atonement for me. And he's, he's, he's looking to the atonement sacrifices that look to this. Okay, that's why this is such an important parable. Um. Here is, as I said, incredible language of justification. He went home, and I translated it like we do, like, you know, that it's in a way forensic. He was declared righteous before God. Okay? He's the one because he looked to the atonement. And what that does is it puts together the atonement and justification. So, you know, we, we do talk about, and I, and I don't want to get in any trouble here with you confessional guys, that, that you know, justification is the doctrine upon which the, chan, the, the church stands or falls. And that's true. But there is no justification without atonement. And I think Luke teaches us that by showing us that the, the, the tax collector says, make atonement for me, a sinner. And then, you know, Jesus says... Because he believed in the atonement, the blood, he is declared righteous. And this is the way I translate it now, making right what has gone wrong. That's what justification means. And really what it is, is new creation. How does God make right what has gone wrong in his creation? Through releasing us from our sins. That's what forgiveness is. And in a way, this then is just extended in the world through sanctification. So justification and sanctification are very much related and you can see how this parable, I mean, everything you need to know about the faith is in this parable. You've got atonement, you've got justification, you've got sanctification. He goes home forgiven. Forgiven. I can't remember what I did here. What is this now? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have to talk about this. I think this is my last slide. And then we have five minutes for questions. Um, this occurred to me at the last minute while I was putting this together. In Matthew, sadly not in Luke, but in Matthew, 
The call of Matthew the tax collector has this very important citation from Hosea 6. And, and you heard Luke's version earlier. You know, he says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners should be sinners. And it's to repentance, Luke puts in, to repentance. But here's Matthew. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, as Luke says. Now, this has always intrigued me, this mercy and sacrifice. And I think it's been misinterpreted by some. Let, Let me start with sacrifice. When he says, I desire not sacrifice, what I think Jesus is saying is, let God take care of sacrifice. Okay? And when he talks about sacrifice, he's talking about justice. Justice. Making right what has gone wrong. Okay? Only God can get justice. And justice only happens through sacrifice, through blood. So he's saying to his disciples, don't you be judges. Don't worry about seeking justice. And all you millennials out there, you know, justice is a huge theme for you today. You know, it is for us too. But, I mean, if you actually read people who talk about, you know, the millennial generation, they are justice oriented people, which is why a lot of the things that are happening in our culture are this, they want justice. Let God take care of justice. Let God do atonement. God does the cross. What you do as the people of God, in light of the sacrifice, in light of justice, is you do mercy. Okay? That's what we're about. That's what the disciples did. And I give a standard lecture, both to pastors and deaconess, and I give it in every class I can, that there are, generally speaking, in this world, and I'll let you decide where you are, or I'll let your spouse decide where you are. <laughs> you're either a justice person or you're a mercy person. You, you need to have things right. You need to get things straight. You've got to correct people. Everything has to be lined up. Or you're a person who just realizes that it's compassion, it's forgiveness, it's love, it's mercy. Now, there is a time for justice, obviously, there's a time where we have to be right. I'm, I'm not, but in terms of the way in which you operate on the horizontal level, there is, there is, I think, a call by Jesus here that we need to reach out to those who are broken. Read the Bonhoeffer quote. Read the Bonhoeffer quote in your, your bulletin about being salt of the earth. To be a salt of the earth is to be a merciful person. It's to manifest in your life the love, compassion, faithfulness, mercy of Christ. And I, and I think that's really what this parable is all about. It, I mean, it, it has to be, because this is the call of Matthew, the tax collector. And he's saying to Matthew, who's, he's splitting hairs. He's a financial guy. He's a mathematics guy. He's a, exacting a price from everyone, and he's, you've got to get it right. Not more, a little more, a little less. He's, you know, and he's saying to him, I am sending you out now to be a mercy person, not a justice person, not a sacrifice person. Okay, I, my time is up. 20 up. Questions? That was quick. See, look, there's no more screen. That's it. <laughs> All done. All done. Yeah, that's what my grandson says. All done. Yeah. So in a couple of those slides, it would say people and tax collectors. And tax collectors, yeah. Good, 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 good. Not including. Yeah, right, including. 
that, and sinners. Yeah, I, and I should have explained that. Category. The word for people there is the word that is the faithful remnant. Okay, there's a technical word in the Greek, and it's laos. There's also a word that's called crowds, hokloi. And if you follow, again, this is you just you're doing literary criticism. You're following those words through Luke. They're always positive. They're always people who face Jesus. There's not a board here. Can I draw on that? Can I draw on this? Okay. This is, will I get in trouble? Will I ruin it forever? Okay. Kirby, this is a great question. Christ is in the center, okay? And there are these circles of audiences around him who listen to him, okay? The 12 are in the middle here, and they're sometimes called apostles. This isn't working very well. They're sometimes called apostles. Then there are the disciples, which in Luke are the 70 that he calls in, in, um, in um, Luke 10. And, and there would be the women, too. And then here are the crowds. These are the people. They're out here. But these are all faithful to Jesus. There's one more circle, which is the religious establishment. Now, this is actually a technical way of interpreting scriptures. It's called audience criticism. So you're, you're looking at which audience he's talking to. If he's talking to the religious establishment, everybody hears him. If he's talking to the 12, none of these people hear him. It's only for them. If he's talking to the disciples, he's talking to these two. If he's talking to the crowds, everybody. So the, the people there are the crowds. They're the, they're the faithful remnant. They're the ones. And there are a lot of them. So those are, all those circles are the people, and then the tax collectors are beyond the people. No, the tax collectors, I think, would be here in the people. They would be part of this group. The faith, these are the faithful ones. And here are your two groups, the Pharisees and the sinners. People are sinners. And, and how do we know that? Because they were baptized by John. See, what people don't realize, a huge group of people followed Jesus and John. Yeah. I'm just going to comment. I really like your translation of the thing because I never noticed before the way you translated is he was beating his breast. Right, yeah. And at Yom Kippur, there's this thing that the Jews do, the Ashamnu, where they're confessing their sins. So yeah. He's confessing his sins. Right. In the next verse, he's receiving absolution. Exactly. That's pretty cool. Because of atonement. Yeah. So great. I have never taught this parable. I mean, I talk about it, but I've never done this. This is such a great gift for me to be able to teach this. So thanks, Scott, for... Yes, Miguel. Okay, is it time? All right. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.